Hi, I'm Brewers News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and welcome to a special episode of the Brewery Pro Podcast. Brewery valuations and investment in the brewing industry have increasingly become issues of focus for us here at Brewers News as we cover the brewing industry. There are several ASX-listed brewing companies and a number of breweries that have flagged their hopes for an eventual IPO. We've also seen the emergence and rapid growth of equity crowdfunding that is pitched as an investment in the breweries undertaking that form of capital raising. We have previously looked at brewery valuations from the point of view of those charged with valuing and selling these businesses. But in this episode, we look at the issue of investing in brewing businesses from the point of view of an investor. My guest is Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer in Australia for The Motley Fool, a website and podcast providing investment education and advice. I should stress that this is not investment advice. This is general information only, and I'm sure Scott will thank me for saying that. Now, I'm an avid listener of the Motley Fool Money podcast, and there's a link to, in the show notes to that podcast. And apart from being a great source of general advice on how to approach investing, Scott has spoken a number of times on that podcast of having been an investor in Gage Roads, now Good Drinks Australia. I was keen to hear the thinking that led Scott to invest in good drinks and also his reason for selling his shares, but also to look at the idea of investing in breweries generally and the thought process that investors should bring to their decision. Aside from being somebody with a significant knowledge about investing generally, Scott also has an understanding of the drinks business as well, something I don't hear very often in money and investment journalism. This conversation talks about basic investment principles and approaches, but also looks at investing in brewing and some of the factors that potential investors should consider in deciding whether or not they are actually investing or indulging in their passion. I introduced this as a beer as a conversation as it was originally intended to go out on that platform. But given where the conversation went, we decided to release this as a Brewery Pro podcast instead, as Scott's insights are very relevant to the brewing business generally. Without any further ado, this is Scott Phillips. Scott Phillips, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Matt, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I know you've got, uh, you do hours of podcasting content a week, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, it's great to see your face as opposed to just hear these dulcet tones uh, coming through, you know, <laughs> as, as, as I go for a run during the week. Do you, do you have people... You know, you, you, you're ordering a coffee or a, a drink in a bar and people go, I recognize that voice. Yeah, mate. Uh, well, I do a bit of TV too. So actually more people recognize me from that than, than the voice, I think. Uh, but as you as you rightly point out, I do have a head for radio and a voice for print. So uh, I will I will do my level best. Yeah, no, very occasionally. Uh, the other thing, I'm, I'm down in Barrel in New South Wales. And uh, and because that comes up on the strap on the news sometimes, and the locals, it just kind of, you know, twigs. So people I think are probably more aware of that than if I was just from Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide or somewhere that would be a bigger part of town. So, uh, yeah, no, I get a few people recognize me. That's kind of fun. I have to make sure I'm almost on my best behavior, though. I can't, uh, you know, can't, can't do the road rage in traffic or uh, pushing someone in front of a coffee line. So maybe it's good for me. Maybe, maybe everyone should be a little bit recognized just so that we're all uh, on our best behavior more often. Yeah, well, in my case, I can't be photographed drinking wine because it would just be sort of off brand. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about who is Scott Phillips and what's the Scott Phillips mm. story? Mm. Uh, so, uh, who is Scott Phillips? Uh, my, my parents' child, my, my, my young bloke's father, I suppose. But uh, other than that, I work, in my work life at least, Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool. So, uh, we provide investment advice to individual 
shareholders, uh, people like you and me and other people. Uh, in fact, I was a member of the Motley Fool's US services before I joined the company. So uh, I've kind of come through that path. Sometimes when you enjoy something, appreciate something, get something from what you're doing, it makes it easier to join the business. So that's kind of how that came about. Um, we try to basically call it as we see it and tell the truth. And uh, that shouldn't be rare in the finance industry. And I don't want to disparage everybody in the finance industry, but the conflicted remuneration and opportunities for making money at other people's expense are often too large to ignore for some people. Uh, and look, we, we're a for-profit company. We make money, don't get me wrong. Uh, but mm. we um, we only get paid by our members. We make we made a tiny little bit of money for advertising. We even canned that recently. Um, we have a funds management arm, which is off to the side. We don't have nothing to do with them. We're owned by the same business, but we run independently. The Motley Fool's advice business is only member funded. If our members like us, they hang around, they keep paying us. If they don't, if I do a bad job, then I go and get another job because they just simply walk away and I don't get paid. So uh, it's a very, very aligned structure. We try to call it as we see it. We try and give people good advice. We try and help them learn about investing, about constructing portfolios, about doing the right things with their finances. Um, and if we do that half well, then again, as I said, members will hang around. If we don't, then they'll, you know, they'll vote with their feet and that's kind of the way it should be. So no conflicts. Uh, we don't make money if people trade too much, any of that sort of stuff. It's all very, very basic. Something I very much understand as an independent publisher, we have to sell advertising, mm-hmm. but yes, then again, yes. we also have a certain number of breweries or advertisers cancel because they don't like our uh, yeah. our, our Fun, coverage because ultimately yeah, we're here to right. serve our audience. Um, Good I, I, I do have to say that when you uh, included you and me in that investment thing, uh, I, I listened to your podcast. I'm an avid listener of the podcast. <laughs> but not because I'm an active investor. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I find the topic fascinating, uh, mm-hmm. which is incidentally how we how, how I came to uh, approach you for this interview because one of the mm-hmm. topics that you've mentioned a number of times on the Motley Fool podcast, and I'll link to that um, in, in, in the show notes, is you've talked about Good Drinks Australia. And yes. since Lion and uh, the old Lion Nathan and CUB, uh, were, were bought internationally and taken off the Australian stock uh, market. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't had many drinks businesses uh, you know, on the ASX, and those that are tend to be microcaps or very, very small uh, businesses. So we don't see a lot of mainstream coverage of them, but that's starting to change. So when you were talking about um, your investment thesis around Good Drinks Australia, it, it really uh, stood out to me. Um, so, but before we talk about Good Drinks Australia specifically, maybe you can explain to our, our listeners who are beer industry people what is an investment thesis, and you know how how do you develop an investment thesis? So I should say too, very quickly, just by way of background, I also worked for Woolworths way back in the day, uh, I, both in the grog shop while I was going through uni, and then I worked in the head office uh, at Woolworths Unora uh, for a few years um, in the liquor department. So I have I have some liquor background, some, some beer background, I also don't mind a tipple. So uh, I'll approach this from both perspectives as we as we chat for the next little while. Um, Great. Look, I, I think an investment thesis, so you need to have a reason for investing in something. And so investment thesis just a, is a, a wanky way of saying, why Why would I buy those shares? Why would I make that investment? Whether it's buying a house, buying a, I don't know, sports car, if you have an investment thesis about that, good luck. Uh, but it's, 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 just, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just a fancy way of saying, I've sat down and I've thought really clearly about why I'm buying something, why I think I'm going to make money doing it and what I expect from it. And so that's, that's really all it is. Um, in 
in terms of investing on the share market, you probably should have a view on the company's quality. You should have a view on the company's financial strength and position. Uh, you should have a view on what you expect the future to look like. And you should have a view on the price. Am I paying a fair price for all of those things? And you can, you know, it's possible to have a reasonably ordinary business, pay a really, really, really cheap price and do okay. Uh, you might pay a small fortune for a fantastic business and still do really, really well. So um, it's important to kind of put all those in the blender. And hopefully the thesis says, I expect to make money because of this business in this circumstances with this future at this price. That's, that's all we're trying to do. With that background, do you look at the devaluation, you know, what a business is valued at, um, you know, and whether you'll get a return from it, what its future prospects are, and, you know, how, how do you go through that process of working out what you think a business's value is? So this is a, that's a great question. I'll try not to get too technical because it's boring for even finance people, let alone people like the finance industry. <laughs> um, and the ones that don't find it boring, by the way, are the ones who are boring themselves. So you want to be careful of those people. Uh, look, so so what we what you're trying to do is you're trying to work out what a, what a business's future looks like. Because at the end of the day, any investment, whether you're putting money in a term deposit, whether you're buying an investment property, whether you're buying shares, what you're trying to say is, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make an investment now, and I want more than what I put in at the end of whatever period of time, right? So I'm gonna invest $100 now, I want a few hundred dollars in 10 years time. That, that's what you're looking for. You want you want more money in future than you've got now. That's why you would put money aside. The economists call it deferred consumption. So I could either buy the, the, the you know, buy the hot dog now, or, or buy the beer now, maybe we should say, I buy the carton of beer now, or I put the money away and buy two cartons of beer in the future. And so I've got to decide, you know, is that is that worth the risk that maybe it'll go badly, maybe I'll have any beer at all, or maybe I'll get three cartons of beer. But either way, you're trying to say, you know, what's the future like? And from a financial perspective, you're looking at either the financial cash flows from the business, so dividends or, or just how much money it makes, or that you hope someone's going to pay a higher price in future. And so that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, well, I know I know this business. I understand this business. Um, let's take Woolies just to keep out of the out of the liquor industry for a second. We'll get back to that in a minute. But you know, if you if you buy shares in Woolies today, you're going to say, right, I know how much money it makes. I know what it does. I know what its supermarkets are and look like and all that kind of stuff. If I buy shares today, I'm saying I expect Woolworths to make more money in future, to have more stores, uh, to be more profitable, and I expect the market will pay more for those shares at that point because it's a more profitable business. And it kind of is that simple. Now, the detail behind that gets a bit harder more quickly because you have to work out why do you expect that to be true? What is it about Woolies that's going to let it grow? Uh, or maybe it doesn't, by the way. Maybe I'm entirely wrong. I don't own shares, by the way. I will disclose where I own shares as we chat. Um, but that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to work out, you know, am I getting more in future? And so that's that's kind of the bottom line. There's there's a whole lot of algebra you can put behind it. There's things called the net present value or discounted cash flows. Uh, they're terms we don't need to go into. But you're basically, yeah, you're trying to put money aside now, hoping that you buy something that's worth more in future, either because the dividends are large and flowing through or because the share price goes up because the business is bigger and better. Okay, so so that's your investment thesis. That's how you establish valuation. When yes. did you invest in good drinks? It was a very long time ago. It was, I want to say, if I was a betting man, I would reckon probably about 2013 or so. Okay. So, and while it was called Gage Roads Brewing Gage back Rose. in the yep. day, and as, as Gage Roads, it had a very good private label contract with Woolworths, and it had a small but growing and relatively popular and relatively well-regarded uh, Gage Roads brand. And how long did you hold on to the shares? Because I know that you've uh, since sold them. I was right. April 2014, I bought the shares. Uh, I sold them, I sold the, yeah, all of them in March of 2022. So I held them for well, a little tiny bit less than eight years in total. 
Um, the shares kind of were um, consolidated, which is a weird way of just saying they kind of you know, combine them all together and made the share price higher. So it's harder to look at the detail. But I will tell you uh, that over that eight years, I've got the numbers in front of me, so I can I can fortunately tell you how terrible it was. Uh, I lost an average of 8.05% per annum over that eight-year period. Uh, I just writing through numbers quickly. I spent about 12 grand on the shares and sold them for about six and a half, six thousand eight hundred bucks. So there you go. Wasn't a very good investment. Okay, so so approaching the investment, did did you look at the? That was a very exciting time for the brewing industry. It was growing. There was a lot of hype around craft beer and the prospects for brewing. You know, did did you buy that thinking that the business individually was going to do well and expand, or did you see them as a potential takeover target, for example, that they might uh, and get get a you know ownership premium paid? So my, I'd never ever invest on a speculation of a takeover because they too often don't happen. So it, it was always possible and I would have been happy if there was one, but I don't think anyone should invest speculating on a takeover. Uh, so no, it was all, so the, the reason was fundamentally that they had at the time uh, a pretty good amount, pretty good volumes. They had a, a very good contract business with Woolworths that I thought was going to continue to grow. And they had a branded business that was attractive and higher margin that they had strategically decided to try to grow to both reduce their reliance on private label volumes and also to try and add some more margin into the mix. And if that worked out the way I hoped it might, obviously it didn't in the fullness of time, at least not so far, maybe eventually it will, uh, then there was going to be there was going to be more volume, which scale is a wonderful thing when you've got a high fixed cost business like like good drinks. Um, so scale is important, but also higher margins. If they could have you know taken out lower margin prime, private label volume or even kept it and then added higher volume, higher margin businesses, then you kind of get both. And so that was the that was the hope. Um, it was also not particularly expensive. It was not particularly expensive, sorry, at the time. And so it felt like a pretty good risk reward if a few things went right. In the fullest of time, I don't think they did, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but that was that was the idea. Was it seemed like we know craft brewing was growing, the branded volumes were growing, and Woolworths at the time also was a twenty percent shareholder, and there was a sense that that hopefully. Oh, by the way, thanks for inviting me on talking about my failures. I appreciate that, Matt. Uh, but uh, there was also there was also hope at the time. <laughs> we learn more from uh, our failures than we do from <laughs> our successes. We do, we do. Hopefully, our listeners will learn something too. Uh, but yeah, no, Woolies had a twenty percent stake, and my hope at the time was that would secure long-term private label support, which also didn't end up happening. Have you continued to watch because they've been very active in the consolidation space? They've, you know, even this year they bought um, the, you know, the, the very strong Victorian brand uh, Stomping Ground. Um, you know, they, they've launched a couple of uh, tap rooms uh, around the place. And a lot of that has happened around the time you're making your decision to, to, to exit the business. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What, what were your thoughts uh, around those compared to your original thesis? I will say, by the way, the share price is down on what I sold them for. So at least thus far, I've been right, but it's been a very short <laughs> amount of time. We'll see We'll see what happens next. I think at the end of the day, industries, I'll, I'll talk, I won't talk industry specifics just yet. I'll talk generals mm. and we'll go back to that. Mm -hmm. The reality is that if you have a high fixed cost business, which brewing tends to be, uh, because you've got a whole lot of plant equipment, you've got to make the beer and sell a lot of it, you have to put big volumes through it. And Goodrinks has never yet really been able to, partly because they lost that private label business, yeah, sliding doors, right? If they if they had a, a large and growing private label business and all the stuff they're doing, this is probably, this, I probably made money on this deal, right? And we're having a very different conversation today. Mm -hmm. End of the day, I don't, I like the strategic moves they're making. They're really positive. But over those Last eight years, they haven't yet been able to demonstrate value creation from any of those initiatives. 
and maybe possibly eventually they finally do. And if they do, good luck to them. I hope they do. Uh, they seem like decent people. I like the beer. Um, you know, ho- hopefully it's a good thing for them. But hope can't be an investment strategy, as my Montfield Money co-host Andrew Page likes to say. And thus far, eight years of, of, of execution, they haven't been able to do it. Now, maybe eventually, as I said, they do it. But you can't kind of hold every share on, well, possibly maybe at some point something might happen. At some point, you've got to say execution matters, track record matters. Delivery matters, show, show me the money, right? Spending eight years going nowhere, or in fact, backwards for me, um, has been a very expensive lesson. Had I sold earlier, by the way, and invested just in, in, in the market in general or something else, I would have made even more money. So the longer I held, the worse it's been. I would love nothing better than to see them succeed and to be able to buy back in, even at a higher price, if mm-hmm. they're able to start delivering on some of that on some of that promise. Um, but they just haven't been able to thus far. And I, and I, I like the acquisition idea because it adds scale and this is these guys are subscale that's one of the really key things that matters the taproom stuff it's an investment in brand and i'm also strategically really glad they're investing in, in brand building and it's really really important will it generate them enough scale to pay for all those extra overheads they're incurring and fill the fill the brewery volumes keep the production lines you know spinning eventually hopefully 24 7 or close to it i hope so but you want to see evidence of that first and thus far uh, they've just been a bit disappointing execution-wise. So I'd love to see it. I, w- I never say never do anything. I'd, I'd happily buy back in if, if the circumstances change sufficiently to give me enough confidence that the future is brighter than it was. Thus far, lots of promise, lots of... I don't mean promises in um, they're making promises they can't keep. I mean, the, 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 the strategy has promise. So lots of promise, but you've got to see some results, I think, particularly after this long to say, hey, there is something here more than just we really, really hope we can make it work. It, it, it's, it's interesting. You, you talk about the high fixed costs of um, you know, any high f- fixed cost industry and brewing is very much that. Yet a lot of the um, consolidation we're seeing in the brewing industry is from small craft brands. Their customers like the fact that they're small and local. Mm-hmm. And so they often keep <laughs> yeah, the small production right. facility. Yeah, yeah. And so they amalgamate the business without ever, to my way of thinking, getting the benefits of that scale. Because, you know, like Lion and CUB, which have 50 brands available nationally, tend to produce from one or two mega breweries. And it's that fact that made the craft brewing industry to some extent attractive because they're small yes. and local. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Is, yeah. You know, does the brewing industry have that internal contradiction as an investment um, because the, the, the need for small and local actually takes away the ability to grow and scale? Yes, yeah, absolutely does. If you think about it in any industry structure, if, it, if an industry is big enough and beer is definitely big enough, there you can have multiple players with multiple different strategies. What you have to make sure is that your strategy is financially viable uh, enough to be, you know, generate returns for you as, as the person who's putting in capital or running the business and for any external shareholders you might have. So if you are, uh, and, and let's go, I mean, let's go restaurant industry, right? If you're Maccas, uh, you have a squillion restaurants, you have low paid staff, but you do it, you, you, you run it with military precision, you keep your costs down, your restaurants clean, your prices low, and you just pour through a whole lot of stuff. Then there are other high-end restaurants that charge $250 for, you know, for, for a person for, for lunch or dinner um, who also can make a lot of money because they work on small volumes, really high prices and really high margins. So Maccas will say, we'll make a few cents on the dollar and just do a lot of it. Others will say, we want to make 80 cents on the dollar. Uh, we, you know, we're going to sell, we're going to sell you know, a $20 lobster for $75 when it's plated up and try and make money doing that. And, and frankly, beer and wine at restaurants you know, come with double the price because they can, it's captive market. And so that's what, that's what they do. 
So I don't think I don't think craft brewers are destined to never ever make any money. They'll never make big amounts of money because to your point, once you're not small local anymore, you're not small or local anymore. And we know plenty of former craft or independent brewers who then got bought up by the big guys, by CV and Line, who said, well, I'll take the money and good luck to them. Um, but then they become part of the, you know, people move on. And so the, the challenge for the brewers when they buy those companies to say, can I extract enough value before people think it's just another one of those production line beers? Um but they all start small. That's how that's how they work, right? Back to Matilda Bay Brewing and plenty of others besides, right? All the way through. Um, but it's really hard. You can't make decent amounts of money if you're going to stay small and local. You can be profitable. And frankly, Good Drinks Australia may well in a different life in a parallel universe have stayed small, stayed regional, um, you know, downsized the facility and actually made some okay money doing that. You know, never, never having dreams of conquering the world, but just saying, you know what, we're going to be a great Western Australian brewer. We're going to work, run a couple of really small facilities. We're going to be fill them up. The other thing, by the way, is not so much about size only. It's can you keep the machine turning over? Um, you know, think about the you know the old story about buying a boat, right? The two, two best ways to buy a boat are when you buy it, the day you buy it, the day you sell it. And <laughs> what it comes down to is that you, you pay tens of thousands for a boat, you use it once a year. And so you're not getting much use out of it. Think about it. Think about taxis, right? Taxis are a great example. Pre-Uber. Why, you know, they, they want them on the road the entire time. You've had so much for the taxi plate. You want them on the road all the time. So you want the drivers changed over. You want to find a driver to drive it. You don't even care really how much you make specifically. You just want to keep it going because the longer it's on the road, the more money you make. And so from a, from a brewing perspective, you can have a small or a large brewery. It's not really even the size that matters so much. It's whether you can keep it full and keep it operating all the time to, to basically defray those costs because that's what you want. If you've got a massive million-dollar plant and you use it for three days a year, you're never going to make enough beer to make your money back. If you can produce 24-7, 365, then you can start to say, well, you know what? Those costs, those fixed costs, as a proportion of my volume, come right down, and that maximizes your chance of making a buck. So I think... Craft brewing is really tough. It's really crowded. Um, some of what the big guys got going for them, by the way, is not even so much production, but distribution. When you know you can make a beer and get to every bottle shop in the country, think about Great Northern, right? Um, when you can say, hey, I've got this idea for a new beer and I'm going to make sure it's everywhere, that is an enormous, enormous, enormous benefit. You can trade off against the other beers you've got, the other brands you've got. You've got more sales reps, more trucks. Um, those scale things aren't just in production, but they're in distribution and sales as well. Do you keep an eye on some of the other? We've got Mighty Craft, which was a publicly listed that um, they, they listed with the idea of um, it was initially called Founders First to accelerate some of these small craft breweries. Um, but again, they <laughs> they haven't been a solid investment um, either. And uh, having spoken to them a number of times to ask them, they they keep talking about a platform of growth and you know the the benefits of scale. But mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not making any movements toward, that I can see towards achieving scale for those small breweries. And now they're looking at selling off some of those small breweries and going for their bigger brands. Do, do, do you watch them at all? A little bit, a little bit. Uh, to your point, at the Motley Fool, we tend to be a, we tend to be a best ideas business rather mm. than follow everything business. So once something, you look at something and go, not making any money, not really making much headway, as you say. Interesting because I just I, I got a, a you know a beer and, and liquor background, so I kind of you know I'm just, I have a, have an affinity for the sector. Plus, I don't mind a, a drink myself, so that that always helps. Um, but I'm only dirty with you, Matt. We're recording this in the morning, mate, so I can't sit and have a beer with you. I almost <laughs> contemplated it, but I, uh, I I did I did hold myself back, so that was probably unreasonable. Um, so yeah, look, I, I, I yes, I've looked at them. I again, the, the interesting thing about this is it's the same problem they're trying to resolve a different way. Yes. And that's kind of the challenge, right? That's kind of where we find ourselves. 
it's a tough one to it's a tough thing to do to try and get that scale to try and deliver and scale's got to be done in different ways you can scale with two you know small but getting larger brands you can try and scale with 100 brands each have their challenges um you know the challenge of aggregating 100 different brands means you've got to be across 100 different brands uh and again not the minecraft's doing 100 but you know what i mean so those scale things actually become diseconomies of scale to use the the jargon because there's so many of them you never really get the benefit you just end up spreading yourself more thinly so it's a real challenge i think it's it's frankly a different version of the same problem that good drinks is having which is how do you get sufficient scale to match your capital investments so that the, the fixed cost you've, you've incurred uh and for, for some of the variable costs like sales of people they're not they're not fixed fixed but you know you're paying them every every week to go and do a job uh it, it's just it's a really hard thing to do and frankly craft brewing is probably its own worst enemy because there are so many of them each of them trying to get the scale everyone launches another brand trying to be the one that gets and some will buy that's the other thing is there might be i know you'd know better than me how many craft brands are out there i guess it's probably in the hundreds if not the thousands um one or two will eventually make it. They will be the exceptions to the rule because they just happen to find a, a niche, a brand, a promise, a taste, a marketing campaign or whatever that just grabs people. And we know there's been there's been those examples. They're generally the ones that get bought up by, by Lion and Carlton. But as that happens, that's that's they're the exceptions. The rest will fight amongst themselves, all stopping the other actually getting that scale because there's so many of them. Uh, they're, they're kind of sucking each other's oxygen. It, it, it's funny, uh, looking at craft brewing as an investment, then the, the picture you're painting makes it sound a lot more like buying a racehorse and considering that an investment <laughs> in that, you know, 100 people yeah. buy a racehorse and, you know, <laughs> 10 of them are going to end up in, you know, probably breaking down in a race. And some of them, you get the pleasure of watching them win and lose. And then one of them actually wins the Melbourne Cup. Um, and, you know... Can you approach something like that as an actual investment, or do you have to go into it, you know, looking at the enjo- the enjoyment you get from feeling the owner of something that you love? I, I reckon it's the latter, honestly, Matt. We've talked about the num- sheer number of brands. There'll be those businesses that try and fail, those that try and try and try and lose and lose and lose money, like good drinks, and those occasional ones that, that do really well and get get bought out or become national brands. Um, that yeah, like a rate, an expensive hobby is probably the best way to put it. Um, and honestly, the fact that you know some of these smaller ones are, are trying to raise money with what they call crowd uh, equity. Uh, in other words, rather than listing on the stock exchange, they say to people, "Hey, mm. do you want to come and buy? You know, put put five hundred thousand, a couple of thousand dollars into your favorite beer brand." Uh, we do it because we love the beer, or we we like the story, um, and it's kind of nice to feel like you're drinking your beer. There's something to that, absolutely. But that's that's in the hobby area rather than the genuine investment area. Um, again, doesn't mean some won't be successful. I'm very, very aware that of the lot that are crowd crowdfunding right now, there will be one or two that maybe do reasonably well. Um, the other good thing, by the way, is when you end up with with a crowdfunded ownership base, they become their own zealots, right? The ones who say, "Yeah, Yo, you got to try this beer. It's great. It's great. It's great." You know, there's there's nothing like the true believer of when you actually own the beer. Do you want you want a, you want a twoies? No, no, I want one of my beers because I you know, I own that and I want to I want to you know look after my investment all that kind of stuff. So there is some there is some frankly marketing value strategic value and having some some retail shareholders yeah. like you and i who say i want to drink my beer you know um i don't know if many of your listeners are own shares but there's something to walking to woolworths if you own shares in the, in the store i had a family member who way back in the day bought shares in Maya, and he said i went in there and I, I looked at everything differently and i felt like i owned the business and i was more interested in it and it does change the way you interact with with products uh but to your back to your question i 
we know how fickle the industry can be. One of the wonderful things about being a, a beer consumer is there are so many new and different choices over and over and over again. You can pick whatever you want, right? You go, oh, I'll have, I'll try this today. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. If, you, if you're a brewer, you're like, don't try this. Stay with mine. Mine's better. And that's the natural tension, right? And that's, I mean, craft beer in and of itself is that they are passion projects. That's kind of, as consumers, that's what we expect them to be as well. So the entire industry structure at that end is not, hey, I'm going to I'm going to drink it because it's going to be the next twoies. It's, I'm going to drink it because I don't want it to be the next twoies. And if it is, then I'll go and I'll change beers because I like local and different and unusual and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the best and most successful craft brewers in, in the true craft sense will be those who maintain local passion and size their cost base accordingly. But there will be, you know, there's a couple of crowdfunded beers that are trying deliberately not to be craft. They're actually trying to be local, but mass and accessible. And there's there's a decent chance they might actually do something at some point that's not unreasonable if they can get enough of a crowd swell. Um, think about some of the beers that we we drink now regularly. Uh, Hahn is probably a good example way back in the day when I was in the in the grog shop and Hahn Ice and Carlton Cole were competing. That's how old I am. Um, you know, I mean, Han pre pre Tui's or, or Lion buying them. Um, that's probably the maybe that's the archetype of what some of these other beers could be at some point. But you're not going to do it by trying to be or trying to remain craft. You're going to have to do different but accessible, inexpensive, available, easy drinking that kind of stuff because that's where scale comes from. I, I'm glad you raised equity crowdfunding because for all of the reasons that you. Uh, said, you know, it does create zealots and it does become people who feel mm-hmm. passionate. But so you know, you've got crowdfunding, which is that go fund me. I've got an idea, back it. Um, and then you've got the equity crowdfunding. And we, we've we've seen the brewing industry really embrace that equity crowdfunding, which is, and I know you've spoken to the guys from Virtual on your yes. um, The Good Oil podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, thanks, mate. Time. But sitting back and watching these things being, the, the equity ones are being very strongly sold as an investment. And in the pitch documents, they're talking about all of the bolters and the stone and woods that have sold for, you know, tens and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and there is an element of, of the way that it's done. It's very high pressure, very much about hype. You can't read the financials for the business until actually the offer opens, um, and you know the, 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 there is an element to me. I describe it as you know those those weekends when you're invited away for a free weekend's vacation, <laughs> but then you and your significant other have to sit in a room and listen to a high pressure, um, and you know for for a timeshare development. And mm-hmm. you know, is there a de- you know quite apart from their f- viability as investments, is that sort of hyped marketing approach to any investment good for an industry or good as an investment category? Or is that a warning sign of itself if that's the way that these things have to be sold? That's a really, really good question, Matt. I'm going to I'm gonna give you a nuanced answer because yep. there is a little bit of exception and rule in, 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 that, in that space as you talked about. If we go back to Amazon, which listed in 1997, I should disclose I own shares, then you know, the idea of we want to become the world's biggest bookstore felt hypey and unrealistic and unreasonable in 1997 when the, when the internet was young and, and you know, the world's biggest bookstore, yeah, right, guys, sure. Um, then we'll take on Walmart, yeah, right, if you're going to take on Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. We will say after the fact, if and when some of these beer brands that are the equity crowdfunded end up crashing and burning, we say, see, I told you it was too hyped. And then one of the two of them makes sense, we say, wow, the hype was real. That, that was actually a really real thing and I'm glad I didn't ignore it or I'm sorry I ignored it. And so we, we, we do these things normally in hindsight. We look back and go, oh, man. 
I don't love hype when it comes to investing generally. Uh, I think, you know, people, <laughs> I want people to enjoy investing. I want it to be fun and interesting. I want the, I want it to feel like something you can get your teeth into and really get some intellectual um, enjoyment out of. But I don't want it to be a dopamine hit. You know, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not there to, you know, red or black at the casino, you know, five bucks in the pokies. Hey, I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. Oh, man, this, you know, I don't want to be excited. I don't want to be, don't want to be you know, um, edge of the seat stuff. This is long-term. I'm putting some money down now, putting $1,000 down now. Hopefully, as we said before, I got $2,000 in 10 years' time. Great, that was worth it. That That's that's investing, right? Uh, punting on uh, a thing that might possibly do well or not. The horse, as you mentioned, the, either the investment or at the races, whichever way, you, an owner or, or a punter, I'm not sure who gets the worst <laughs> returns, actually. Uh, the bookies win, but I'm not sure anyone else does. It's a really difficult thing. So I don't love the hype um, generally in any investing, including equity crowdfunding. And there's plenty, by the way, on the on the ASX, plenty of hype there. Uh, you only look at some of the lithium stocks or some of the other stuff. I mean, there's, there's hype all over the place. Um, so you want to be careful of that. I don't love that. I think it's a shame that we have that going on um, in general. But I don't want to point it just at the equity crowd, guys. What I do worry about is that people get sold the idea not the financials. And the people who participate in any capital raising, including equity crowdfunding, may not be doing it with the required degree of understanding and sophistication when it comes to what they're buying, what they're getting for it. So if I if I spend if I invest two thousand dollars in a in a an equity crowdfunded beer, uh, you know, capital raising or uh, some biotech on the you know, sort of you know ca- cancer cure on the ASX or some lithium hopes and dreams miner. They're not necessarily different. They, they can, they're the same types of problems. People say, beer, beer, I love beer. I love that beer. I love the person behind that beer. Therefore, I'll buy the shares. I'm like, well, the, the first three things can be true. Whether you should buy the shares or not isn't relevant to any of those things, right? Uh, we all know businesses that have that have gone so motherless broke despite being backed by some great people. Adam Gilchrist famously was on the board of a, a sandalwood producer, uh, wood used for, um, you know, those kind of incense stick kind of things. Um I love Adam Gilchrist. He's a great cricket player. He seems like a really good bloke who, you know, I loved his honesty on the cricket pitch. Does that make him a good director? Does that make it a good investment? No. And and that's not to bag Gilchrist or the company, just that the two don't need to be the same. So when you think about celebrity-backed companies generally um, and buy it because the celebrity is involved, that gets a that's that stretches things a little bit more than I think you should be comfortable with. The flip side, I will say, is some of that celebrity endorsement actually can be good for the sales of the product itself. So if you've got, and let's let's use Drink West as an example, one that was that was raised by Birchall, uh, Nathan Cleary, um, Tai Vasa, Tyson Pedro, some some sports stars, uh, Cleary, a rugby league player, and the other two uh, UFC fighters. Um, these are, you, you know, it, it may be they bring with them massive numbers of potential drinkers because who doesn't want to drink the, the, the beer that these guys are drinking? You know, that seems like a really good thing to do and a, and a really cool idea. And why would you not? So there are times when those things can in and of themselves be, you know, yes, it makes you want to buy the shares, but if it also makes you want to buy the beer, then maybe there's something to it. So I, I don't want to, there's no, there's no blanket rules, but to your point, the more something's being hyped, the more careful you should be to make sure you're really considering the investment on its merits and not getting swept up by the story. Again, like you, I'm old enough to remember a whole lot of <laughs> fad investments, whether it was wine yes. or, you know, yes. um, and, and whiskey barrels. We, we might even come to that. But then, uh, you know, yep. I, I look at something like ostrich farming that was yes, huge yes, yes, for a while. Yes. And, you know, on, on one level, it stacks up. You know, people are healthier. So ostrich meat is, you know, or is, is leaner. We can use the feathers for this. You know, we, we can use the skin for leather. We can use the eggs for this. You know, there, there's nothing about the animal that can't be used. They're environmentally, and it ticks so many boxes. 
and so much money flowed into it. And I don't know anyone who made money in ostrich farming. Uh, I know a lot of farm people have put money into it, (laughs) but I don't know anyone that actually made any money out of it, except for the people selling the investment. Funny that, uh, which which is the number one which is the number one challenge. Um, I mentioned at the top the finance industry is an interesting industry. Uh, there is so much money flowing around our industry that there are people who have very 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 strong incentives to find ways of parting you with your money uh, because there's so much in it. Right? If I can create a product that all of a sudden seems attractive, then you'll throw me your money and I'll make a fortune. And whether you make a fortune or not, it's up to you. Uh, there are some people in our industry who are straight out crooks. There are some who are immoral. Some who are just misled. And there are some who are trying to do the right thing. And, you know, you can make up your mind who's who. But, um, yes, you're absolutely right. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about good drinks before, actually. Not that they're anything like ostrich farmers, but you just gave a list of potential uses for ostriches and why it might possibly at some point be good. And that's okay, but the the, the kind of the maybe what might possibly happen depending on circumstances at some point, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's, I kind of think about, you know, I don't know if you did, probability at, at school and I won't go into detail but you know if you go to a probability tree say if this is true and then if that happens and then if that happens then if that happens I call if the small the biggest small word in the English language because once you add some of those ifs together if I can buy an ostrich farm cheaply enough if ostrich meat becomes something that's sellable if supermarkets stock it at a large enough volume if it can be if if you know there's so many ifs on that that the probability of that actually being successful becomes infinitesimally small and why do people do it? Because they got sold on the greed idea. You could possibly make a fortune out of this. Why do people buy lottery tickets? Lotto is the stupidest investment in the world. I buy a lottery ticket every now and again too, and I know I'm stupid for doing it. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at other people. Uh, but the very idea of, you know, someone's going to win a million dollars, it might be me, therefore I should buy a lottery ticket. It's about the stupidest thing you could do. But how many of us do it? They reckon half of Australia bought a Powerball ticket last time it was $160 million, um, despite the fact the odds were infinitesimally small. Um, and so you kind of, that, that happens across the board greed takes over and the if if ifs all stack up and people go well but maybe but imagine if but imagine if it's right and then you start to convince yourself it's right because humans are weird creatures You've, you will have heard me on the podcast talk about you know our evolutionary brains are so terribly terribly ill prepared for investing um that <laughs> i actually have started i've started calling investing these days i think investing is probably defined as your ability to overcome your brain's natural instincts because that's kind of what it is, right? Successful investors are the best, are the ones who can best overcome the brain's instinct to, I want action. I want it now. I'm not very patient. I can't imagine waiting. The guy over there is making some money, so I'm jealous. Every day our brain is trying to, is trying to, you know, mess with us when it comes to trying to invest. And the, the bad people out there will absolutely know what our psychology does and take full advantage of it. Every marketer in the world's job is to say, hey, <laughs> how about you, how about I appeal to your subconscious? How about I appeal to your emotions? Very few of them want to appeal to your rational brain because rationally you'd say, that's a stupid idea. Why would I do that? But your emotional brain says, it tastes good. It looks good. I'll feel better. I might get rich. I, you know, And that, that's what they want to try and appeal to. Shut off your rational brain. Uh, use your emotion. And, and people raising capital are probably the same thing, right? They, But the, here's the, the only other thing I would add is the equity crowdfunders themselves, people who are raising money, aren't doing it because they're trying to screw you. 99.9% of them are trying to do it because they think if I could get some more money, maybe my beer might be the one that finally, or, or is the next Han, or is the next Matilda Bay. Mm. And if I could do that, then I'll make money for me. I'll make money for my investors. I'm not saying it's not risk-free. I'm just saying, I really think we should try this and I'm going to give it a red hot go. Come and help me Come and help me do that. Again, you know, Twiggy Forest started with Fortescue with, you know, not exactly $14, but not much money in the back pocket. He's now a billionaire. So it's, it's possible, right? Every other, you know, iron or company went broke, but Twiggy made it. 
Should Twiggy have not tried? Well, obviously not. But should the others have not tried? In hindsight, we know the answer to that one. Doesn't mm. mean that you know Twiggy's fortune isn't real. Really good point. I guess it, you know, given investing is nuanced and and the, the considerations around it. Is there a potential downside, you know, particularly from a from a brewing industry? And I said I'd come back to wine. That's probably a good time when we saw a a rush of investment in to the wine industry, you know, with government incentives and things like that. And then suddenly you have a a wine glut that because everybody's rushed into it, that can take out a lot of what would otherwise be viable businesses because they're all competing against each other. You know, is there a potential downside if there is this easy money flowing into an industry? Um, you know, that's based on passion and not necessarily uh, more robust investment thinking. One of the paradoxes of investing is that most investors will say they, be- they believe is in capitalism. And capitalism works on the fact that if there's excess profit, someone will come and take that away. So if there are, if there are a lot of beers being sold, a lot of beers being drunk, it makes sense for a lot of people to try and get into that industry and, have, and make their share of it, right? And when, when competition works... There's not much profit to go around because that's what's supposed to happen. You know, capitalism invites competition. Your competitors come in. They keep profit margins low. Whenever profit margins creep up, someone else says, oh, I love some of that, please, and I'll jump in. Think about the airlines. Every every five or 10 years, we have a third airline launched in Australia. Someone wants to try and take some share. Very rarely works, but that's what happens. Someone says, but what if I could make? I could probably make some money there. I could probably take something from those guys. Um, now we have a lot of oligopolies in Australia too. A lot of a lot of which means you know a, a few uh, a few companies more dominating a space. Uh, we might talk about uh, Lion and, and CUB. We might talk about Coles and Woolies. We might talk about Qantas and Virgin, Telstra and Optus, maybe TPG. Uh, so two or three companies at the top of you know, four big banks. Um, so it doesn't always work perfectly. But to your point, I think you know it's 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 really hard because. You know, a lot of easy money in an industry is because people think there's some promise and they're all going to try and chase it. But yeah, you're right. The more competitors there are, the more serious those competitors are, the more engaged those those competitors are, um, the lower the margins are for everybody else because they're all trying to do the same thing. And eventually someone's going to try and fight on price or volume or distribution or something. And it makes it harder to compete. So if you're a, if you're a, <laughs> yeah, if you believe in capitalism, you want lots of competition. If you're a business owner, you want as little competition as humanly possible, right? Because you want to say, well, how about we both... No, no one actually says that out loud because it's illegal. You can't collude. But if... It, right, I'll give you an example right now without making any allegations. Uh, as we record this, Qantas and Virgin are charging a small fortune for airline tickets and they're not adding any capacity. The airline, the, the planes are full. They're canceling the ones that aren't full. They are absolutely both separately, but at the same time, maximizing profits. That's what an oligopoly can do if it's working in in the in the favor of the independents. So without the small guys, would our choices from the big brewers be less and more expensive and less impressive and less exciting and interesting? Yeah, absolutely. They just make the two or three beers they get away with making. They make them at really, really, really long production runs. Uh, they put the prices up because no one can compete on price and they'd make a fortune. Uh, and I'm not, not dispersing those guys. That's just what, uh, if, you're, if you're a business owner, that's what you would do. That's what you should do. You're there to maximize profit, right? The little guys in the space, the more of them, uh, frankly, the lower the returns for everybody else, and is you know, it's, so it's a, it's a tough one. Generally speaking, the more players in an industry, the less profitable that industry is for the incumbents. Just tends to be the way it works. Last question before we move off crowdfunding yeah. is: How important is regulation to you know consumer com- or investor confidence in an industry? Um, and, and I raise that because. Equity crowdfunding is regulated by legislation. It's supposedly uh, overseen by ASIC, and yet it's such a small little niche area 
that I can't imagine ASIC ever having the resources to properly uh, regulate it. Um, is that potentially problematic, or you know, does that you know create a wild west possibility? Possibility, absolutely, yes. Um, I don't know of. I wouldn't mention if I did, but I would say generally, if there, if I thought there was, I don't know of anyone doing equity crowdfunding who is doing any wild west stuff right now. In, mm. in the sense that they're not anything that's illegal or questionable that would possibly breach some rules, mm. to my knowledge. Which is not to defend them, I just don't know any that are. Yep. I, have no, I have no investments in them, by the way. I have no, I have no dog in the fight. There's no, I have no relationship with anybody in that space. But there's always the there's always the possibility for doing so. As I said, whenever there's enough incentive, whenever there's enough money sloshing around, someone's going to be incentivized at some point to bend or break the rules. So yes, it's always possible. Would ASIC have the opportunity to look at it? No, I don't think they would. The funding organizations, the guys who manage the crowdfunding uh, capital raisings, uh, they have every incentive to do the right thing because they want to do more and more and more of it. So I, I, I'm not too worried about the incumbents breaking the law as, as it currently stands. I am actually more worried about the law itself and, I, and, and the, the way it's presented. You know, when, when, the, when the inference that someone can draw is, I'm going to throw $2,000 into a crowdfunded you know, craft brewery because, hey, it's only $2,000 and I get to own some beer and I get to feel like an investor. I think that's kind of, it's not misrepresented, but it has the potential to be inferred by the reader of the information that way. And as something, I'm, I'm an investor, right? I'm a stock market guy. But when people treat, you know, people would go to, the, if you went to the dogs and you put $50 on the nose of something, Adapto on a, on a was it Friday, Saturday night, wherever they race these days, um, people say, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're a problem gambler. That's a stupid bet. Why the hell would you do that? As soon as you say, oh, it's an investment, you put two zeros on it and you drop $5,000 on some brewery or some other company, by the way. And, and you know, to be really, really clear, not, not bagging the, the brewers or the, or the crowd funders. But when you say, oh, look, here's this new big new business uh, and it's trying to raise capital, it might be cool. And you put $5,000 on it, you say, well, it might possibly do well. And, I, you know, it's 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 one of those things that I think we need to be really careful of because it, it has that veneer of respectability because it's air quotes investing rather than air quotes gambling. Then you can put $5,000 on it and feel like you're doing the right thing. If you put if you put fifty dollars on a, on a dog, let alone five hundred or five thousand dollars, people look at it. Well, are you completely stupid? What you know? What 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 chance do you have of knowing whether that dog is going to win? I'd say the same with some of this crowdfunding. And by the way, again, just be, let me be really clear. Also, some of the money people put on even ASX listed stuff. The little <laughs> there's little speculative bi- miners and biotechnology companies, all sorts of stuff. And people do exactly the same thing. They say, oh no, it's, it's an investment. I'm putting five thousand dollars in that. Maybe it might do well. I'm like if you if you wouldn't do that, at the dogs or the casino, you really have no you have no business doing it in equity crowdfunding or on the ASX either. You, you make a great point there because I guess, you know, anyone that watches journalism, we all read papers trusting that we're being given good information. And then I think anyone who has ever yeah. had personal knowledge of the story that they're reading mm-hmm. immediately sees all of the flaws. Yeah, that's true too. Yes, um, yes. Good point. And, and, and so you realize that, well, if you spread that across the whole paper, what do I, what, what do I trust in? And as somebody who has a fairly good understanding of the brewing industry, um, and you even see Australia's leading uh, you know, financial paper, uh, the AFR, um, whenever it covers the, the, the drinks industry, you see it reporting so much on gossip and media release and speculation <laughs> that has clearly come from the company that is listing or listed or you know wants to boost its uh, you know prospects and it's being reported as fact. So it, it, it's clearly you know it, it runs across the whole industry. How challenging is it? Um, and, and I say this as a as a as a journalist who's who, who sort of tries to strip out the the hype and nonsense from media releases to inform our readers. But 
as an investor, how hard is it to have to work to get the knowledge of a business to, uh, to, to make a meaningful, informed investment? So that's a really, really, really good question. Um, there is too much journalism by press release at the moment. And that's partly the journo's fault, but frankly, it's the business model fault for the for a lot of the a lot of the publications, right? Where it's like, I've got to put a story out. I got a press release from so and so. They say this thing. I paraphrase it. I put some quotes in. I pub- hit publish, and I've reported the news, and we're done. And I say that all the time. In fact, if you ever compare um, two or three different news sources on the same story, they're all obviously using the same press release and regurgitating different ways. Um, then it's an issue. It's a real issue for the for the for the industry. It's an issue for society. I think we're not as well as formed as we could be because of the pressure on journos. I'll just interject there because um, a lot of our readers will know that we publish media releases, and it was something that I did at the at the start because in a drinks industry where you see that everyone's coverage is the same. We actually publish the full media release with the disclaimer at the top saying, this is a media release. We have not applied any filter to it. Read it as as that because I, I take the view that when everyone else reads the, exactly the same thing that someone has gone <laughs> through right. and yeah. edited and yep. sort of, but yep. added no value to it, um, yep. they, they can go, well, hold on. Here is the source of all of that news. Yes. And you're better off doing that. I think that's a better, I, honestly, that's a much better, more responsible approach than trying to, trying to recraft a story around a press release and pitches a story. Um, our, our investors at the Motley Fool have have tendencies in their early days with us. They tend to do the same thing. They will say, "Oh, this company's going to do this next year," and I'll say, "Are they going to, or is that what management said?" Well, that's what management said. Okay, well, let's say that because it's not the same thing. They're not they're not being disingenuous. They're just reading that and saying, "But the management said they were going to do it, so they can do it, right?" So, well, a bit more cynicism or skepticism might be required. Uh, you'll learn and, and we'll get there. Um, so, yeah, you're exactly right. That's that is the um, that is the challenge. So, I think. Back to your back to your question in terms of the the information investing. Here's the problem with investing a lot of the time. There are some really smart people who do it. And smart people, I'm going to make some massive generalizations here. Smart people generally want to be the smartest person in the room. They want to be smarter than somebody else and they want to have the most complete, the most whatever version of their truth. And that's intellectually admirable. Investing-wise, you have to differentiate between how much you know and how much of what you know is actually important. And I would suggest that 95% of your, it's the day 20 rule, 95% of your returns, particularly the excess returns, that when you beat the market, you do well, don't come from the one piece of information I found out on day 362 of my research. If you get the basics roughly right, if you understand the business model broadly, if you understand the, the things that move the dial when it comes to businesses and investments, and you get that roughly right more often than not, you're actually probably going to be better off with that than trying to be more, um, uh, trying to be cleverer. You know, I think there, there are some really, really smart people who are so keen on being right and the best and whatever, they miss the broader idea, which is get it 80% right. You know, it, it didn't take, it doesn't take all that much to look at something like an Amazon or a CSL or I don't know, I'm trying to think of you know big even Woolies right Woolies listed at two dollars thirty five it's now thirty five dollars stock is it is it growing yes has it got more customers is it opening more stores is it taking market share yes you don't need to know all that much more than that is it sustainable yes um, you could find out that the new metro store at you know um, New Farm West is going to have three eighty four square feet of this thing and that price and that margin and it's kind of it's interesting. 
But does that change the, the, the basics of the, the building blocks of the investment? Very, very rarely. So sorry, it's a long answer, but I actually think that the time is better spent understanding the sources of business and investment success and looking for those. So you know, get, get your mental model right and then apply it rather than trying to be an expert in a particular company thinking that, as I said, the, the nth day of research will finally unearth that gem that, that goes from, I'm not going to make any money to this too. I'm the only person who knows this thing. I'm going to make a squillion dollars. It's just so incredibly rare. It's probably time wasted. Last question. Do you have any uh, investments in the drinks industry at, at this stage? Clearly, you've sold your good drink shares. Do you have any uh, others that you're keeping an eye on? I don't. Um, I, <laughs> when I, well, you know, you know when you, you're a kid, you're young and stupid. I, I, want, I, I probably was always going to be in investing. Unfortunately, I haven't been as successful as I wanted to be. I had, I had uh, aspirations when I was a kid. My old man used to drink two years old and two years country special for those who remember that beer. Uh, <laughs> and and I, had, I had dreams of buying, buying two years back from the Japanese and, and making an Australian company again. So, uh, so that, that was going to be what I did with all my millions when I made them. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened yet. But uh, you never know. Lion, if you're out there and you want to make me an offer, make me an offer. Uh, but otherwise, no, I don't, have any, I don't have any drinks investments at the moment. I used to work for Diageo back in the the day i'm still very partial to a guinness or two um so i i try to spread my drinking around i guess some cooper's extra stout in the fridge at the moment actually uh so no no nothing nothing currently in the in the liquor space unfortunately i do uh i do own shares in treasury wine estates for, for full disclosure i know you're asking about beer but just to kind of cover the the general space um i would love to find some really high quality uh listed alcohol slash beer investments um i think it's a I think it's a very promising industry. I like what's going on. Um, I think there's some really good money to be made by some savvy investors. But it's uh, there's no options at the moment, at least in my uh, in my investigations. But when there is, I'm sure you'll let me know, Matt. Well, if, if you can't afford Tui's, I think there are a lot of smaller craft breweries that may be uh, looking for investors. So, <laughs> yeah, um... exactly. <laughs> Look for Godfather <laughs> offer, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Scott Phillips, thank you. This has been a brilliant chat. I've, I've really enjoyed it and learned a lot from it. So uh, I'll be putting links to The Motley Fool and your various uh, other podcasts. Um, but thank you very much for uh, joining us for this conversation about beer investing. Mate, it has been an absolute ball. Thank you very much for inviting me and I will, uh, I will follow with interest. Thank you. And that was Scott Phillips. As I said in the intro, this is general advice only. This is not investment advice. And you should take it in that context. If you want to hear more general advice, you can hear about Scott Phillips' thoughts on investing by his Motley Fool Money podcast that he does with Andrew Page. You can also hear his chat with Matt Vitale from Virtual, likely a very different chat with Virtual than I would have had on his Good Oil with Scott Phillips podcast. Again, there's a link in the show notes. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can invest in us. Either as a business, you can take some advertising, or as a listener, you can sponsor the show. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can invest some time with us by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting service. Also, you can email us at producer at to share your thoughts. If you're not already a listener to the Radio Brews News channel, we do a weekly show called Beer as a Conversation on that platform, and we also look at the news of the week on Brews News Week. You can find a link to that in the show notes as well.